0: so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread his truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the word to resurrect among us so that heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back, listeners, as we are going to continue our journey in going through Luke chapter 8, as we, I guess our journey through the book of Luke, but this morning we're going to be hitting the rest of Luke chapter 8, hopefully. If you have not listened to part 1, which was um, about the parable of the sower, it's paramount to understanding the rest of this chapter, and in fact, as according to Jesus' words, it is paramount to understanding all of his parables, um, in, in just in general. He says, if you don't understand this parable, then you will not understand any of them. And that's why we took an entire segment of 45 minutes worth to break down the first 15 verses of chapter 8. Uh, It was not my intent, but it's where the Holy Spirit led us. And so I encourage you guys to go back and listen to that. If you haven't, if you've already listened to that one, then press forward with me as we go through the rest of this. Really, the next roughly like eight verses is still going to be dealing with the concept of what the parable of the sowers was about. So we're going to even kind of go back into that concept a little bit. though we're not going to go back into the content. We're going to go into the concept of taking care of how we hear the word of God. Um, And that's a lot of what the parable of the sower was. So I encourage you, again, if you have not listened to it, go back and listen to it because it is fundamental to understanding the word of God and to what Jesus is teaching as we move forward. So for those who have already listened to that one, we're going to press forward. Start in verse 16. No one after lighting a lamp covers it with a jar or puts it under a bed, but puts it on a stand so that those who enter may see the light. For nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be made known and come to light. Take care then how you hear. For to the one who has, more will be given. And from the one who has not, even what he thinks that he has will be taken away. Now I'm going to keep reading because this stretch along with the next few verses actually goes hand in hand. He says, Then his mother and his brothers came to him. But they could not reach him because of the crowd, and he was told, your mother and your brothers are standing outside desiring to see you. But he answered them, my mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and do it. Now, that's a, 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 an interesting response that he gives. To his, his mom and his earthly brothers. His earthly family. We don't know what's happened to Joseph at this time. Joseph is mentioned at the birth of Christ. He's mentioned at Jesus whenever he's, he was 12 years old in the temple. And Joseph is mentioned there. Past that point, Joseph is never mentioned again. We don't know anything about what took place. At least I don't. If anybody does, please inform me of it. Um, other than any kind of like hearsay or speculation towards it. Um, anything concrete. We don't really necessarily know. And so he says his mother and his brothers, which I, I would assume that that would probably be meaning the anthropoi is the Greek word. I haven't looked it up, meaning brothers and sisters, because Jesus had both. But it does primarily say his mother and his brothers, and I'm just going to shorten it up and say his family. His earthly family comes to him. And they say, hey, we want to, to, to you know, have some time with you, Jesus. And he says, hold, hold up. My earthly family. It is not necessarily my family unless they hear the word of God and they do it. And that is a harsh teaching to a lot of people because there's many people out there today who think family is everything. Your earthly family is everything. And that's just not the case. And I'm not going to make that my topic right now. But I would encourage you to go look at 1 Timothy 5.8 and realize that the word that's used there... For relatives is a word that denotes an earthly bond, okay? And then he goes on and he says, for his own house. That word promotes a heavenly bond. It's one in which you are bound by blood. And the other one, as he talks about his household, is one that is bound by blood as well. But it's a spiritual blood. It's the blood of Christ. And he says, the one who doesn't provide for his earthly family... Yeah, that's wrong. You should provide for your earthly family. But if you are not going to take care and provide for your heavenly family, you're worse than an infidel. You see, the concept of family gets redefined when we come to Christ. Our family, first and foremost, is the household of faith. Your earthly bond to your family, that's a strong bond. But it is not your first and foremost priority in life Luke twenty, Luke 14, 26-27 makes that clear. And we'll even look at it at the end of Luke chapter 9. But the point is, is that he's referencing here, the people who are his family has gotten redefined into those who hear the word of God and who do it. Now why is that important? Well, because in Mark chapter 3, verse 21, here's what it says about his family. It says, starting in verse 20, Then he went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, They went out to seize him, for they were saying he is out of his mind. Now that's that's just an interesting picture that I would love to kind of carve into a little bit and go a little bit deeper to the meat of what that's stating, but it's not our topic for this. But I want to give you some stuff to chew on. His earthly family thought he was out of his mind. So Jesus said, you know what? My family are those who hear the word of God and who do it doesn't mean you don't have a responsibility to your earthly family, but what it means is that your priority in life will be your heavenly family. If you do not wrap your mind around that, then you are worse than an infidel. Let me just put it bluntly for you, because that's what 1 Timothy 5.8 says. That word for household is only used three times in all of Scripture. It's used once in Galatians, it's used once in Ephesians, and it's used once in 1 Timothy 5. And in every instance, in Galatians chapter 6, verse 9, it talks about do good to all, but especially those who are the household of faith. In Ephesians 2, it talks about being at the household of God. And in First Timothy chapter 5, verse 8, it talks about taking care of your household. Those who you have in eternal blood shared with as the blood of Christ. And if you don't do that, if you don't prioritize them as doing good to all, but especially the household of faith, he says you're worse than an infidel or an unbeliever, depending on what your translation states. So, with that, I want to go back up into verse 16. Now that I've kind of hopefully gotten your attention to some truths that maybe have been unnoticed in your life. But in verse 16, he talks about this light, right? Right after he talks about the parable of the sower, of the the seed that's being sown, the word of God that's sown into the hearts, and how the heart responds to that word of God is is determining whether or not there's going to be a lasting fruit, and he says, look, how you hear the word of God is going to be um, the, the paramount um, building block for how the word of God is built in you. And in this passage, he's talking about this concept where he says, look, if if you love the word of God and you really want that, you, you reverence that word of God and you adore the word of God, as David talked about in Psalms all throughout, he says, look, then you're not going to put it you're not going to dampen it. You're not going to put it under a, a jar. You're not going to put it under a bed. It's you're going to let that light shine for because you're proud of that Word of God. You adore the Word of God. You trust the Word of God. and You want everybody to see the Word of God manifest in your life. And so you're going to hear it and you're going to do it because you love it. That's what Jesus says in John 14 where he says, Those who love me, you're going to do what I say in John 15. I'm, I'm drawing a blank actually. I'm going to turn to it real quick. I know it's on the left page, the left hand column. And for those who have listened to my teaching long enough um, in person, you're going to know that that's oftentimes I have a photograp- photographic memory. And so that's oftentimes how I, I memorize things as I remember where it's at on the page. So on the left-hand page, left-hand column in verse 18, verse 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. Going even back into verse 15, if you love me, you will keep My commandments. Jesus is saying very clearly that if you really adore the word of God, the things that I've commanded you, the rules that I've put in place under this new covenant. And yes, there are rules. You can go back and listen to my first podcast on this one in uh, the beginning of of Luke 8. He says, if you really love me as you ought to. You'll keep my commandments. You won't put them under. You won't hear the word of God and see what I command for you and then put it under a light. Or put it under a bed or under a jar. You're going to let it shine for all to see. You're going to let that light shine. And the reality is is that there's many people, even in the church today, that they need to start knowing how to deal with people who shine in the light. We have a hard time with that today. We, We tell people, oh, you're shining too brightly today. You're shining too brightly for my liking. Well, that's because you want to remain in darkness and your eyes are not accustomed to seeing the light. Let me just tell you something. If Jesus and Paul or Peter... Or any of the apostles that, were, um, that lived in the early church, were living today. I guarantee you many, many Christians, professed Christians, would tell them that they need to dampen their light. And that just isn't the case. We need to shine bright, guys. We need to let the light of Christ in us shine bright. And shine it proudly. And how do we do that? We hear the word of God. We receive the word of God. And we keep the word of God. We live it, as James one twenty one through twenty two says. Um, Receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, thinking that you can just. It's enough to only hear the word of God or hear the voice of God. You don't actually have to do it. And let me just tell you, we live in a civilization right now, in the church, in a church culture where many churches out there are talking about the fact that it's not about that. You don't really have to do the word. You don't really have to obey, because that's legalism. Well, K.P. Johanan has a quote where he says that we have, there's a travesty in the church today. We mistake um, uh, obedience for legalism and bondage. The things that we were commissioned to do, that we were commanded to do, we now take it as legalism if somebody actually says, uh, no, I think that we need to do that. We take it as legalism. And now it's become a cuss word in the Christian church today. The reality is, is Jesus is telling him right here, look, the fruit of heaven is going to be produced in the heart of flesh according to how you hear the word of God. That's his whole premise of what he said in the beginning of it. And here he says the exact same thing. Take care then how you hear. And he talks about these two different ones, about the one who has, more will be given. And the one that has not, even what he thinks he has, will be taken away. Translated into that... Um, it, it, it 's more of a a one who turns their ear towards will be given more of an understanding, and the one who turns their ear away from will have it taken away. There's some correlating passages in second Peter chapter three seventeen actually it might be quicker if I look it up on my phone. if I can get to it real quick, bear with me. Second right, Peter chapter three verse seventeen. In a context of him talking to the beloved, as referenced in verse eight, he goes on. Therefore, beloved, in verse fourteen, and then he gets into this passage. Um, I'll just yeah, I'll just start in seventeen. You, therefore, meaning the beloved, those who are in Christ, those who are part of the church, who are part of the beloved of Christ. You, therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, that people are going to take the word of God and twist it into something that it's not. People are going to take the scriptures that are difficult to understand, as Peter says of of what Paul writes, and they're going to twist them to their own destruction. There's going to be people around you who are going to be taking the word of God and twisting it to mean something it doesn't mean. And he says, you, therefore, beloved. Knowing this beforehand, same phrase, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. Or the Greek word can translate to security. That which makes you secure in Christ. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Do you see the correlation? You see the same thing in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12, where he says this. Let me get to my phone real quick, again, so I don't misquote it. He says, take care. Same exact phrase. Brothers. Same exact thing. The author of Hebrews is writing to the church, and he says, take care, brothers. So it's an intended audience of those who are in Christ. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. Now, how do you fall away from something if you weren't really ever a part of it? The author of Hebrews is instructing the believers, this very real warning, to make sure that your heart does not be let is not led astray from hearing the precious words of God and doing those words of God. Because it's not enough to just be a hearer. Notice the twofold effect of this, as he said in twenty one. But he answered that My mother and my brothers are those who hear the word of God and Do it. It's not just who hear the word of God. It's those who hear and who do are considered family. Now this concept of taking care how you hear the word of God. I mean, why is this so important? Let me just tell you. There's a lot of people that I've encountered who they listen to what I have to say. They listen to what the word of God is teaching. but They don't really let it change them they just go about their merry way doing their merry thing and and let's just i'll just be really blunt even right now there's been a lot of people i've told about july 4th about how uh in in american history it is a unbiblical holiday it is something i'm, I'm dealing with actually the the pastor at our uh, church right now that we're going to i've you know, gave a sermon over Romans 13, 1 through 7 last week. And, and so I just kind of sent him a text and said, I know that that's a difficult passage, but I want to talk to you a little bit more about this because I, I see you got some things wrong. And I'm trying to come at it from a perspective of I'm no longer an elder. Um, I'm actually under his authority. I've submitted to this guy uh, as part of a church structure that I've got to be respectful in how I come to him. Because I'm no longer an elder. I'm not an elder who's going to be uh, reproving another elder. I- I'm somebody who's under this guy's leadership. So I have to be in respect to that. But there's some things that I want to uh, go over and expound on. Because as a Christian, as somebody who has the authority of the word of God manifest in my soul. to have to make sure that is correct in other people's lives. And in my own. I've got a responsibility to that. So... My point in all of this is that I've brought up the concept of how are we to be submissive to governing authorities, but yet today, all throughout America, there are many people who are celebrating a holiday of independence from governing authorities. How, like, how does that work? Romans 13, thir, Romans 13, 1-7 talks about it where it says that we are supposed to be subject to the governing authorities. And as 1 Peter chapter 2 says, not only to the good and gentle, but also even to the unjust. And it says, to this you've been called... So even if the governing authorities of a nation are unjust, be subject to them. Pay taxes to whom taxes are owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. And as Peter even says, honor everyone, even the emperor. How are we supposed to do that and yet celebrate a holiday that is declaring our independence from a governing authority simply put because we didn't like the taxation without representation or we thought that they were unjust? So there's many people who hear the word, but they don't actually want to do what the word says. We want to receive from God what he wants to give to us in Christ, but we don't actually want to go give it. It's the same concept. Jesus says those who are his closest um, companions in life, those who would be considered his family, are those who not only hear, but who do it. They treat the word of God as precious and they love Jesus enough. I I, I don't know how many of you guys know, it's not an in or out type thing in which you either love Jesus or you don't love Jesus. You can love Jesus, but he's just on down the, the pecking order of things that you love in life. That just means that you have idols in your life. It doesn't mean you're not saved. Because Jesus himself writes a letter, or not Jesus himself writes it. Jesus tells John what to write in a letter to the church in Ephesus. And he tells them that you've abandoned your first love. And you need to repent to where you were at first. You need to put me first in your life again. You need to love me first and not your earthly family or your job or your money or your possessions or your reputation or yourself. You need to love me first. And that's the same message he says in Luke fourteen twenty six 26-27. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father, mother, brother, sister, wife, children, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. He says, you've got to love me more than you love anything else, including your own life, including your earthly family. It doesn't matter what it is. You love me first or else it's an idol. And that's what he's writing to the church in Ephesus. These are believers. What the spirit is saying to the church as he ends it with. And he says, you've abandoned your first love because I was that at one point, but you lost it. You you had other things become more important. You stopped hearing the word of God and doing it. I became inconsequential to your life, whatever it might be. And you still love me. You still give me lip service. You still go to church on Sundays. You still sing your worship songs. You still love me, but I've just fallen down the pecking order from being the primary love of your life. And maybe you find yourself in that position right now. It doesn't mean you're not saved. It just means you need to repent and need to put him back where he belongs. And that's a lot of what this passage is about. is taking care how you hear the word of God. Do you hear it and try to justify it away? Do you hear it and try to reason it away? Well, then you'll never produce the fruit that God wants to produce in and through you. Because how you hear the word of heaven is a direct link to how the word of heaven will be revealed in you. And so I'm going to leave it right there. I would encourage you guys to go look at Hebrews chapter 4, 11 through 13. I would encourage you guys to look at the verses that I brought up in in 2 Peter 3 or Hebrews 3 or James 1 um, in correlation to this. Because how you hear the word of God is paramount to to how God is going to be revealed in and through you. It's not necessarily the proof of your salvation, although it could be. It's not necessarily the proof. Go back and listen to the, to the um, first podcast over at Luke chapter 8. It's not necessarily the proof of your salvation. Like I said, it could be. And you've got to wrestle with that. Only, you're, only you are going to know whether or not the Word of God proves that you have been saved. But what it does mean is that if you are, are hearing the Word of God and trying to reason around it or trying to justify things away from it to make it say what you want it to, then you've got to really do some soul searching on there to really find out like, man, where is Christ really on your primary pecking order of what you love the most? And so going on in this concept, because we've still got a lot to cover, and I'm already 20 minutes into this thing. He goes on in verse 22. One day... He got into a boat. He was kind of leaving this topic, right? And this is a vital topic for us to understand. That's why we took, you know, over an hour to try to discern these first 21 verses. And I even left a lot for you to just chew on and go study for yourself. I didn't even expound on everything that, that I could have. But he goes on. He's kind of leaving that topic. Now he's going on to us to this. And He says, one day he got into a boat with his disciples. And he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out. And as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this, that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Now, it's interesting, because I had said that He kind of leaves the topic from before, and yet he actually is bringing a parallel prophecy from Psalm 107 into the account here to give them an illustration, and by extension to give us an illustration that even the winds and the water can obey him, and yet those of us who are human, who have been created in his image, we oftentimes reason away and justify our need to obey him. Remember, he just said, take care how you hear the word of God. That's the voice of God. And our response should always be obedience. And yet the winds and the waves obey him, but we like to justify away our obedience. So I kind of stand corrected. He didn't actually move on from the topic. He's just bringing it to light in a different manner. Now, here's what's interesting about this is that Jesus is the one who said, let's go. He probably knew the storm was going to come. And he falls asleep in the boat in the middle of this chaotic storm. And all the disciples are frantic. They think they're going to die. And so they go to Jesus and they're like, Jesus, how are you sleeping in this time? How are you doing this? We're all going to die. We are all perishing and you're just sleeping? Man, that's the difference between having faith and having anxiety. A lack of trust in God's provisional ability in your life. And Jesus stands up and he rebukes the wind and the waves. And, the, and there's a calm that's there. And by so doing, he actually fulfills a psalm. Which a lot of people, I don't think, I just talked about with, with my kids this morning. As we're going through Acts chapter 15 and Luke 24, 44, he talks about how um, everything that was written about him in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalms must be fulfilled. A lot of people don't realize that the psalms spoke about Jesus. That the pro that Proverbs spoke about Jesus. That the law of Moses spoke about Jesus. They don't understand it because their minds have not been opened to it yet to understand it. Which is interesting because the very next verse he says, that he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. That Jesus was there. That it all points to him. Listen to what he says in Psalm one oh seven, twenty nine through thirty. Well, let me just start back in twenty eight. It says, Then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. Man, I don't know about you, but that's one of those very clear-cut illustrations of how the Psalms pointed to Christ and how Christ fulfilled the Psalms that was written about him. And you might see this as just a story, and you could build a whole sermon around about how even though it might seem like Jesus is asleep in your life, he might be distant, He, he, he might not be aware of what's going on. In an instant, he can wake up, and he can show himself, and he can change, not necessarily the circumstances of your life, but he can change you and your circumstances. But sometimes he does change the circumstances. Sometimes he does calm the waves in the sea. But the point is, you could build a whole sermon around it and completely miss the whole point that this was actually a fulfillment of a prophecy in Psalms that was written about the coming Christ who would one day calm the storm and he would hush the waves and he would bring them to their desired haven. Now, ultimately, that's the, con- the concept of our salvation. But here in a physical sense, in the very next verse, he starts in 26, Then they sailed to the country of Gerasenes. He brought them to where they were supposed to be going. There was a meeting that he had with this guy, with this, these demons named Legion, as we're about to find out. He brought them where they needed to go. And he'll bring you to where you need to go. Because all things work together for the good of those who love him. As he ought to be loved, we just talked about that one, and are called according to his purpose. Meaning this, that if you love Christ first and foremost, you're not guilty of idols, you're not guilty of having other things equal to or greater than your love for Christ. And if you're walking according to the purpose that he's given to you, it does not matter what storms come in your life, it will all be worked together for good. You don't do those two requisites you love, or if you're loving Jesus second or third or fourth in your life, and maybe you're not walking how you're supposed to be walking, then that doesn't necessarily mean that everything is going to work out good for you. But it will if you do the first two. And if you find that even in James chapter 1, he goes on, he says, the one who does these things will be blessed in his doing. In John 13, he says the exact same thing whenever he's washing their feet. And he says, the one who does this, Will be blessed in his doing. Not just talking about it. But when you actually do what the word of God says. That's where your blessing will come. And I'm not talking about prosperity on earth. I'm talking about your prosperity in heaven. And so it goes on. He says. Then they sailed to a country of Gerasenes. Which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land. There met him a man from the city. Who had Demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, and I want you to notice this very, very um, pointed statement that's right here, okay? When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I beg you, do not torment me. Now, if you notice, I emphasize the singularity of the term that's being used there. Jesus comes on to Gerasenes, and this man who had not been able to be bound even with chains by the people, he lived among the tombs, and he constantly was cutting himself and crying out loud screeches and squeals. I mean, you can just imagine the picture and the scene of what's going on. And this guy comes running up to Jesus. And it already said he had demons, multiple But this guy comes running up and he's speaking to Jesus in the singular sense. And Jesus, he says this, I'm sorry, for he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of him. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into a desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. Or as another account says, my name is Legion, for we are many. And that right there is the changing, um, the, 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 what's the word I'm looking for? It's the, the, uh, the, the hinging point of where everything just changed in the conversation that Jesus was having with this demon. And I want you to understand something. When we begin to look deeper into spiritual warfare, you're going to see things that you never saw before. When you begin to engage in the spiritual battle that we are in every single day, we wage war, not against flesh and blood, as Ephesians 6, but against the principalities, the spiritual forces of darkness of this present day. It's not flesh and blood. You deal with flesh and blood, you'll never find the results of heaven. You and I, as Christians, fight a different war. It is not a physical war. Jesus even says, "If, if my kingdom is not of this earth, it, there's no nation of this king, of this earth that is my kingdom. My kingdom is of heaven. Because if my kingdom were of this earth, then my soldiers my, my my men would be fighting. He says, But that's not what the case is. Soldiers of heaven do not fight battles on earth that are physical and fleshly and temporal. Soldiers of heaven fight the battle of heaven. And we wage war. And what do we have as our weapons of warfare? As Second Timothy chapter ten or second Corinthians chapter ten says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of this earth, they're not fleshly. Prayer, obedience to the word of God, intercessory prayer, love. These are all things of how we fight against the devil. If you're out there fighting a physical war, let me just tell you, you are not a soldier of Christ. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you're fighting the wrong battle. Second 2 Timothy 2, four says, No soldier gets entangled in civilian pursuits. Another way of saying that is, is, No heavenly soldier gets entangled in earthly things. Because his mind is set on pleasing the one who enlisted him in this heavenly battle. And so in this instance, the the hinging point of everything, now all of a sudden you're going to see the plurality of how the demon is referencing to Jesus because now the mask has been peeled back. And let me just tell you, a lot of Christians today are falling for the mask because that's all they're looking at is the physical side of things. And they're not trying to dig down deep to get underneath that mask to find the spiritual sense to it all. He says this, Jesus then asked, what is your name? And he said, legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss, which goes into Revelation 9.1. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Notice the plurality of it all. It's, it's no longer this, uh, this mask of being this man who's possessed. Now Jesus is getting to the root of it, and he's talking to the demons. And I want you to understand something. A Roman legion was 6,000. Like, I, I don't know if this is something you've ever thought about. Maybe you don't even believe demonic possession is real. And I would just encourage you to get into the Word and say, and I'm going to tell you, you aren't going to find anywhere where that ceased. Or maybe you didn't, you didn't know that a person could be possessed with multiple demons. Well, we know Mary Magdalene had seven. And we know that this, this person had at least 2,000 because it says that they went into this herd of 2,000 pigs. And it destroyed every one of them. But a Roman legion with 6,000. I think that name was given for a reason. I don't think that these demons named themselves legion just because there was only four. Wrap your mind around this. That when a soul... Be what, what, You know, like when a shark smells blood in the water, there can often times be called this feeding frenzy where the sharks just go crazy. And, and they don't care what's going on. It's just attack mode. And and sometimes there's souls that are like that to where it becomes attack mode for the demons and it becomes this feeding frenzy. And so it says... Um, Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man. Okay, I think I left on 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened, and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed, Then all the people of the surrounding country of Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Now I, I can't honestly give you an answer as to why these men who had been Tormented by this, this demon-possessed man for so long, Jesus just freed them of that torment and then they asked him to leave. That doesn't make sense to me. It doesn't make sense to me that here's this guy that's wanting to follow Jesus after he'd just been healed. And Jesus tells him, no, you need to go back and you need to, um, you need to go tell everybody what I've, what, what's been done for you, what God has done for you. I can't give you an answer. Maybe it just he wasn't part of what Jesus was trying to accomplish. Maybe he had a different purpose for the man. That he wanted to go use him as a testimony for what Jesus had done. In his hometown. I don't know. i, I struggle with what my purpose is in life sometimes. Of why does Jesus have me here in Edgewood? You know? Why does he have me here back in my hometown of where I was raised. When no prophet is welcome in his hometown. Sometimes I struggle with some of these things, but the reality is, is God has a purpose beyond what we see oftentimes, and we need to trust that purpose and simply just follow his lead. Of what he says, that's what we do. Where he says to go, that's where we go. Isaiah had that same mentality in Isaiah 6 when he says, here I am, Lord send me. And he was willing to, for 40 years of his life, give himself to the service of a king and to declare the words of God to people who did not want to repent. Jeremiah struggled with that for 70 years from the time he was 16 up until the point of being 76. You trace that back in the genealogies of the kings to find out how long Jeremiah served God. But there was a point earlier on in Jeremiah's ministry where he just wanted to shut his mouth. He just wanted to say, God, look, no... No one is repenting at what I'm saying. What is my purpose here? I'm declaring your word. I'm doing all these things, but people are hearing it, but nobody wants to receive it. Nobody's repenting. This is getting hard. This is getting difficult. And God said, you need to keep going. And Jeremiah said, no, I'm going to shut my mouth. I'm not going to do it anymore. It's too hard. I don't see any effect of it. Nobody wants to to till up a garden and, and work up a garden and not have any fruit from it. I'm not seeing any fruit from what I'm doing. I'm going to shut my mouth. And I'm paraphrasing a lot of what's stated, but Jeremiah said, I'm going to shut my mouth. But that, that word of God spoke in him like a fire and he couldn't help but open his mouth and spew out the words. That is Jeremiah five fourteen, even talks about where he says, I'm making your, your words of fire and these people would and it will consume them. We don't always know what our purpose is because we don't always see the effect of what we want our purpose to be. That doesn't mean that we're in the wrong place. Doesn't mean that we're doing the wrong thing. And maybe this guy, maybe he just needed to go and to go declare everything that Jesus had done for him as a testimony to, to God's glory and to his grace that's been given to him. Why the people wanted to kick him out, I don't know. Maybe they were just so terrified that this guy had authority over what they did not, that they, they were scared. I don't know. I don't know what the reason was. But we know it happened. And I want to talk about, just real quick, what he talks about in chapter 11. It says in verse 24, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. And finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. And as Matthew 12, 12, 44 says, and empty. Then it goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Let me just tell you real quick, when when we're talking about demon possession, if there's a deliverance that takes place, if there's a deliverance that is made, if that person does not give their life to Christ, and they're not filled with the Holy Spirit... That demon is going to come back. Jesus has declared it, has said this is what's going to happen. If that, that vessel does not become filled with light, does not become filled with the Holy Spirit, then it will be filled with a greater degree of darkness than it was before, and a greater degree of an unholy spirit than it was before. When there's deliverance, it doesn't end there. There must be a filling, and the only way to be filled with the Holy Spirit is to present your life to Christ and have Him be Lord of your life. That is the only way. I once had um, a situation that I was having to deal with that um, a guy was demon-possessed, and there was a deliverance um, that was going on and lots of prayer was being made all this various stuff and the demon came out and the guy went limp he just basically was like lifeless almost almost looked like he was dead and he came back and he didn't remember anything that had taken place all he knew is that this rage all this stuff that he felt was gone was just completely gone um and he uttered the words fill me but there was no surrender to Christ as Lord of his life. He just wanted the filling to try to um, make himself feel better, so that he would feel safe and secure. But he did not want to give his life to to Christ as Lord. Several weeks went by, several months went by, and all of a sudden, this guy got worse than he was even prior to. Let me just tell you, it's real. And your number one thing that needs to be done after deliverance, after a demon has been delivered, is you need to preach the gospel. You need to give them the gospel and the requirement of having that gospel infiltrate a person's life. And that is the complete and total surrender of their life to Jesus as Lord and Savior. And if that is the case, as Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, says, that in Him when you receive the gospel of your salvation, the word of truth, and you believed in Him, you surrendered to Him as Lord of your life, it says that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. That means that you are identified and marked as God's child and the demon has no authority over you. So I don't know where you're at, where you're listening to this. If you find any interaction with deliverance from demonic possession. I'm not just talking about oppression. I'm talking about possession. Then you better make sure that you declare the gospel message. And if the person rejects it, then that's on them. But your job is to make sure that you declare the gospel message so that person can be filled and secured by the Holy Spirit and marked and identified to the heavenly realms as belonging to God Almighty. Going on in this one, in verse 40 says, Now when Jesus returned, the crowd welcomed him, and they were all waiting for him. And there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet he implored him to come to his house for he had an only daughter about 12 years of age and she was dying. As Jesus went the people pressed around him and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. I don't think that's coincidence that you have this little girl who's 12 years old and then here's this woman who's full grown but she had been been struggling with this bloody discharge for 12 years. Same exact number. It says, and though she has spent all of her living on physicians, she cannot be healed by anyone. So catch this. Here's this woman who's, uh, um, you know, she's a woman. And she has had this discharge of blood for 12 years. And she spent all that she had on physicians, on this earthly medicine. And she didn't get better. In fact, the word says that she got worse. Now, understanding in Jewish culture, to have a bloody discharge meant that she was unclean and that people could not associate with her, essentially. I mean, could, could she be in the town? Sure. But, but even as, good, as far as, I think it's in Leviticus, where it says that if during the woman's menstrual cycle, if a time when she has a discharge of blood, if she sits on a bed and her husband goes and sits on the same bed, he's considered unclean for seven days. The, the discharge of blood was considered an unholy thing necessarily, um, and during that time, and, and let me rectify that a little bit. I'm not saying that it's that the the menstrual cycle that a woman goes through is unholy. No, it was, it was it's designed by God. It's it's a, a process of the body cleaning itself, okay, and so it's not an unholy thing in and of itself. But it was considered during that time. That it was an unholy time in her life and that she needed to be separated. And so for 12 years of having this discharge, there was going to be this separation among the people. So you can imagine probably why she just wanted to have fellowship with people she, in a way that she you know, might have before this. So she spent all that she had on physicians and she didn't get any, any better. In fact, she got worse. And listen to what it goes on. It says, She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood ceased. Immediately. And reaching out towards Jesus in faith, her discharge of blood that she had struggled with for 12 years that man could do nothing for, immediately it dried up and she was made clean. Simply reaching out in faith to touch Christ and Jesus said, who, who was it that touched me? When all denied it, Peter said, Master, the crowd's surrounding you and are pressing in on you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me, for I perceive the power has gone out from me. And when the woman saw that she was not hidden, she came trembling. And falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him and how she had been immediately healed. And he said to her, Daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace. You see, only reaching in faith will see faith's response in your life. Many people were reaching, out and, uh, were reaching out to touch him, but only those who had faith in who he was and what he could actually do in their life were the ones that found faith's response back towards them. And so the, the reality is, is that there's a lot of people who claim that they believe in Jesus, but they're not reaching for him. They're not having an outstretched hand towards them as God did towards them. They're not reaching out in faith of taking hold of what Jesus is offering. There's many who say they believe. But I think there's few who are actually reaching out towards him in faith to get from him what he has offered. So going on, he says, while he was still speaking, someone from the ruler's house came and said, your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. But Jesus, on hearing this, answered him, Do not fear, only believe, and she will be well. And when he came to the house, he allowed no one to enter with him except Peter and John and James, and the father and the mother of the child, and all were weeping and mourning for her. But he said, Do not weep, for she is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him, knowing that she was dead. But taking her by the hand, he called, saying, Child, arise. And her spirit returned and she got up at once and he directed that something should be given her to eat and her parents were amazed but he charged them to tell no one what had happened. So I could go through and I could, you know, give you guys some some verses. I could ask you some questions, you know, that, that might give you better understanding of the text But but I think the reality is is I'm just going to challenge you do you really believe that these things took place? I know we we say it's written, we read them in stories, and we talk about them. We teach them in Sunday school, we teach them in Awana, we teach them in, you know to our young kids. We memorize them, all this various stuff. But I, I'm just going to ask you: Do you really believe that this took place? And if your answer is yes, then I'm going to challenge you to ask yourself this question: Why don't we see things like this? today and I'm going to further refine that question to your life why don't you see miracles like this today, now miracles in and of themselves are not the proof of Christ's presence because Matthew seven twenty through 21 says that many are going to come to me saying Lord, Lord, did we not do miracles mighty wonders, did, did we not do all these things in your name, and he's going to say yeah, I never knew you so don't be swayed by miracles of thinking that that alone is the testifying work of God's presence and power being at work. And I'm not just talking about people being raised from the dead. I'm not just talking about people having their bloody discharge dried up after 12 years. I'm talking about even just those individual things of having victory over sin. Those addictions and those trials that you've had in your life that you've never been able to get over and you just say, woe is me, I'm always going to be like that, I'm always going to be like this, nobody can fix me, nothing can happen to change my circumstance. Why don't we believe in the resurrecting power of Christ anymore on simple things in our life like having victory over sin? 2 Corinthians ten four through 5 says that we have weapons of warfare against things of sin that are not carnal, they're not earthly. And it says that I have the authority to take every thought captive unto obedience to Jesus Christ. There is nothing in my life that cannot be surrendered to Christ and have Him have authority over it. And that includes sin. You are not just a sinner saved by grace. That's who you were. But now, through Christ, you can do all things who gives you strength. Now, through Christ, you are more than an overcomer, more than a conqueror. Now, through Christ, you have the grace that is needed to take every thought captive. Now, through Christ, you have the ability to walk as Christ walked. And it's not even something that's up for debate because the word of God is made clear. It's man who is reasoned and justified because we no longer in today's church, at least in America, in many ways, we no longer want to hear the possibilities of what the word of faith can do in our life because we have reasoned ourselves into believing that those things are impossible. Let me just tell you, all things are possible for him who believes in accordance with the word of God. There are some things that are impossible that the Word of God states. Like in Hebrews 6, it talks about in chapter 6, 4 through 6, there are some things that are impossible. But in having victory over sin, oh, that absolutely is possible through Christ. To walk as Christ walked, that's possible. To be like the teacher, absolutely. Because that's what the Word of God states. And it's time that we as the church... Start hearing the word of God for what it says and not what we feel comfortable with it saying. Y'all be blessed.